Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, for the crisp weather reminding us of your mercy from summers. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have provided us with a place to meet that has heating, that uh, we have uh, all the amenities that are luxuries really for us to meet. And we, we just are grateful for what you've given us. We thank you that uh, you've given us a, a community to come together and study your word and to learn more of Jesus. We pray that some of that happens this morning as we strive to be um, in him and reflect him rightly as uh, individuals and as a community. Uh, we pray for Sylvania that you continue to strengthen her and to bring her up uh, into the the image of Christ as a body here, a local body in Tyler. And we, we pray for the other churches meeting around town this morning, that you would strengthen them and you draw them closer to Jesus as well and do uh, what we hope you do uh, in us this morning as we study your word. We thank you for the book of Acts and the encouragement that it is to us, the challenge that it is to us to live in a, in a culture that is continually hostile and growingly hostile to the gospel how do, how do we live faithfully? Uh, so we pray that uh, we see the, the picture of that in, in, your, in your work in the early church, uh, especially through this sermon of Stephen this morning. We thank you for all these things and that Christ is glorified. We pray that, uh, that we take part in that this morning. In his name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Acts uh, chapter 7. Um, now, we've been slowly <clears throat> working through chapters 1 through 6, and that has been kind of the, the thing of, uh, of, of the church being empowered, uh, and they've been given a mandate. Remember what the mandate was? Jesus' mandate to the church? Go make disciples. Where? In all the world. In all the world, starting where? Judea. Jerusalem, then? Samaria. Judea, then? Some area. And then, and then the uttermost was used King James, uttermost parts of the earth. All right, so you have this mandate, marching orders from Jesus, and they've been doing fine in Jerusalem, right? We've seen some things going on. Uh, 3,000 on one day, up to 5,000 on another. Uh, continually working, the community's growing. Um, last time we were together in Acts, we saw that they uh, actually had a, a, a church issue. It wasn't the color of the carpet, but similar. It was an administrative issue. They had the Hellenistic Christians complaining that their widows weren't being taken care of, right? Who were the Hellenists? Who were they? Greek-speaking Jews coming from where? Outside of Jerusalem, right? So what had been happening is, over the centuries, as Jews were taken out of Judea and repatriated because of conquering kings, doing that kind of thing, there would be pockets of Jews all over the world, and now it's all under Roman rule, so all over the empire, and they would be what's known, what are known as Hellenized Jews, which means that they, they had taken on a lot of Greek cultural aspects. But we talked about last time they would come back, uh, because they wanted to die, as, as some of the men got older, they wanted to die in the holy city in Jerusalem. They bring their families back, they die there, and guess what? The missus is left alone without any support, and so they had these widows. So there's this community of Hellenistic Jews there, and they were actually kind of marginalized, not by the church, there was a, a language issue, we talked that through, but in the city at large, 
they were kind of seen as the foreigners, right? And they were actually very, the Hellenized Jews were actually very nationalistic, which is surprising because you'd think they'd be abroad, they have a little bit wider scope of what the world is. But when they came back to Jerusalem, they were all about Israel. Okay? So there's this pocket of Hellenized Jews in Jerusalem. And uh, whenever the church uh, tried to solve the problem of the Hellenized the, the Christians' widows, what did they do? What was the solution to that? They appointed deacons. They appointed deacons or men. We, we kind of saw that there was some argument that maybe they weren't strictly deacons in the Timothy and Titus sense. They may have been actually elders because they were handling the word there. Uh, but there's an argument both ways on that. So one of them was named, the first one named by Luke was Stephen. And we saw that Luke does this a lot. He kind of introduces people and he does it in, in, the, in the stages of how he's going to handle them in the text. So he starts with Stephen. The next one is Philip and we'll get to Philip a little bit later. So we have Stephen. And what did Stephen do? Did it talk about Stephen's mad administrative skills? What's he doing in Jerusalem among the Hellenized Jews? He's doing... He's preaching. He's doing signs and wonders. He's having man full of the Spirit. He's full of wisdom, right? And these are, these are terms that are often used of, of, of the prophets of old. I mean, this is the man full of wisdom and of the Spirit. And he's out there with the Hellenized Jews talking about what? Always a good answer in Sunday school. What is he? Something happens with him. What happens? <clears throat> Let me get a drink. He's seized of what? He's seized of his freedom. Okay, why? Because he said that Jesus will destroy the temple. The charges against him twofold, aren't they? One, that he is blaspheming Moses or blaspheming the law. And the other is that he's blaspheming the temple or saying that it would be destroyed. It's, it, they consider that blasphemy. Well, now, why would they consider that blasphemy? Destroying the temple. It's where God resides to them. The house of God, it's called. Why would speaking against a building, though, be considered blasphemy? It's considered holy. It's considered holy because it's God's house, right? Okay. Um, we're about to go through Stephen's defense here. So they, they arrest him. They bring him before the Sanhedrin. They make the charges. They stir the people up. And this is a unique thing because this time around, uh, even though the apostles had been before the Sanhedrin twice, this time uh, Stephen doesn't have the support of the people, right? The apostles had the support of the people. The people were very pro-apostle at the time. But as democracies go, this one went a little fickle. And so now they're against Stephen, okay? So feeling the wind at their backs, the Sanhedrin ask him at this charge, I think the, the high priest at the very end, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it kind of ends that accusation period. The high priest said, are these things so? What do you have in defense? And what we're going to see is the jujitsu that Stephen learns from Peter's defense of himself, which is take a defense, flip it around, and turn it to an indictment. This is the longest speech in Acts, Stephen's defense. The longest one. And there are a lot of similar things that Stephen says that Peter has said. But 
I, I really, it's an amazing thing what he does, and, and we're going to go through all of it um, as much as we can. All right. It's the longest speech in Acts, and it's fitting. It's fitting that it is. So 53 verses, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, let's look at verse 2. We're going to start with verses 2 through 8. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. All right. Why go through this historical narrative? Why does he even start here? If you're talking to very nationalistic Jews, where do you want to begin? Father Abraham, who had many sons. And it starts here. I mean, it's a, it's a historical narrative. It's pretty vanilla up to this point, right? Abraham, we all know this story. The Sanhedrin knew this story. What's the language that he's using at the beginning of this speech? How does he address them? Brothers and fathers. Brothers, my fellow Jews. Fathers, my elders, my, my authority. Now, Philip says this a lot, and I think it's a good lesson to take note of here. The gospel is offensive. Don't add to it. And he's starting out very humbly. Right? He's addressing them as fellow countrymen, as brothers, as the family of Israel. He's starting out very humbly even though he's been wronged here. I mean, he's arrested on false charges. Why start with Abraham? Look, look at how he, how he deals with this. Where is God calling Abraham? What land? Not his own. Not his own land. He didn't call him in Israel. Right? And this is the first instance, and you watch this throughout this entire thing. He's laying the groundwork. God is working... And he can work outside of Israel. Okay? He's calling him outside of Israel. Uh, he, he is, he's showing that Abraham had no inheritance, not even a foot's length, it says, yet God was present with Abraham in Mesopotamia. Um, and then you see in verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, this beginning of the, the promise fulfillment pattern that you're going to see in Stephen's entire historical narrative. What does he mean by this place in verse 7? What do you think? Where are they? Where is he talking? Where is he addressing them? What, what complex are they in right now? 
They're in the temple complex, right? They're having this hearing in the temple. And he's referring to come and worship in this place. He's talking about the temple. Um, the temple is in view here. That's the charge against him, blasphemy against the law in the temple. So, the, so what he's doing is he's showing that the real goal of God's promise was not the land at all. It was true worship and devotion to God. That's what he's calling them to. Not a place, but a position of humility before God, right? All right, so you see in verse 8, there's a quick transition that he uses uh, circumcision kind of as the motif to get, to get through the history. They're all familiar with the history. They know the patriarchs. They know uh, Jacob was born eventually. Um, and then he gets to Joseph. Let's look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, um, uh, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. All right. You know what's interesting is what he doesn't say as much as what he does say. What does he focus on with the, with the narrative of uh, Joseph? How does, how does he characterize the patriarchs and how does he characterize Joseph? What do you see? Joseph is a foreigner. Oh, he's in a foreign land. Okay. It's the fulfillment of what God told Abraham. Okay, so there's a fulfillment of what God told Abraham. I'm going to bring you to a foreign land, and, and they're going to oppress you. So there's that. Joseph has lifted up. He's already presented as not um, the lesser, not, not the weakest. Yeah, you don't see any of Joseph's suffering in this. It's just God's favor. On it's God's favor on him. That's right. God raises up a deliverer. Where? In Israel? In a foreign land. And he, and he characterizes Joseph as having favor with God. How does he characterize the patriarchs? Non-favored. Non why? What does he call them? Yes, but why? <laughs> Jealous. Jealous of whom? The one that God had raised up to deliver them. And what did they do with the one against whom they had all this jealousy? They tried to kill him. They rejected him. Right? All right. So you have this contrast between Joseph and his brothers. God was with Joseph. He had given him wisdom and favor. Joseph's brothers, the patriarchs, were, were jealous of him. Was Based on uh, Stephen's uh, little recital here, was God with or showing favor with the brothers at the time? Why do we know that he was not? I see heads, heads shaking no. Why do we know that he's not? Why do they have to come to Egypt? They're starving. They're starving. He's not blessing them. 
Right? <coughs> Incidentally, just a side note, step back and look at the sovereignty of God here. He's starving them for their good in His glory. He's getting them to Egypt to deliver them and bring them to the... Anyway, we just, just want to put that out there. Um, where... Oh, okay, this is good. How many times does Stephen say they visited Joseph before the... Uh, well, how many times did he visit Joseph? Twice. Twice. What happened on the second time? He reveals himself. He's made known to them. Right? Okay. Put that... Put a pin in that. We'll, we'll get back to that in a second. All right. So you have this uh, beginning motif of deliver raised up. Um, and then he goes to this reference to the burial site in Shechem. This is not exactly correct. Uh, Joseph was buried at Shechem. The deliverer resided and was laid to rest in Shechem. But the patriarchs were in Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac and all them were buried. That was in Judah proper. <clears throat> Shechem is in Samaria. So that hated area... That's where the deliverer is laid to rest. What's he doing here? He's just reciting history. But you see what he's doing. He's laying a groundwork. You want to come against me and Christians about blaspheming the law and the temple. Your own history shows, our own history shows, God raises up deliverers outside of the... He's not bound by this place. Right? Right? He's not bound by this temple. He, it, the world is his footstool, not this little strip of land that we call holy. All right. Let's look at, okay, this is the longest section, so bear with me. I'm going to read the whole thing, 17 through 34. This is the longest section of it. It's about Moses. But as the time of the promise drew near, what promise is he talking about? What promise? 400 years. The 400 years when? What would happen? They'd be delivered out of, out of Egypt. Okay. Um, all right. But, at the time, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father to two sons. Now in forty years it passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now this is the major portion of his speech. Moses, are you seeing the themes repeated? You see them? He divides Moses' life into three 40-year segments. And at first he spent some time developing that Moses also had wisdom. But where did he get it? From the Egyptians. Well, that's going to make some people a little beklimt in their connecticut zoink. He got it from the Egyptians. God can work through others than the Jews. That's the point he's making there. As a defense, trying to calm people down on their nationalism, is this going to work? <laughs> That's not his aim, is it? That's not his goal. He's not trying to mollify their nationalism. He's challenging it with their own history. Importantly, God raises up a deliverer to fulfill his promises, and he had trained him for his future role. God was, again, with Moses, like he was with Joseph. He's with Moses. And what happens? This second year 40 span shows a consistent trend with Israel. What happens? Moses is moved from the heart, and it says he visited his brothers. Now that term visited means, it's a very similar term to having God's emissary come and plead for his people, uh, to defend his people, to protect his people. And so that's the idea behind it. Moses is commissioned by God to deliver Israel, and he feels that burden, and he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and what is he going to do? It doesn't say this in Genesis, but Stephen's slant on the text, his interpretation of the text is he avenges the Israelite. And the idea here is that it was a divine vengeance. It was a divine act of judgment on the Egyptian for her, kind of a symbol of what God was going to do to all of Egypt for their enslavement of Israel. He comes out the next day, what happens? What happens? What does he see? A church squabble, right? He comes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And what is the pushback? What does it say? Who made you judge and ruler over us? Now that's one man, in one instance, saying what is the echoed refrain throughout all of Israel's history. What's the answer to that question? God did. God made me ruler and judge over you, is, what he's, is, is the natural response from Moses, because that's God's raising him up. And it would be the natural response from these people who are judging Stephen now, because they know the history. Well, God did. Do you see what he's doing? 
Moses was God's emissary. The Israelite here is a type of Israel's flat rejection of the divinely appointed leader. Stephen passes over the anger of Pharaoh prior to Moses fleeing, fleeing you know, Egypt. We read in, in, in uh, Exodus, when we went through Exodus, Pharaoh got pretty mad at Moses about killing this guy, and so that Moses left. The way Stephen sets it up, though, and, and there, there may be some indication that this was the case, it was the, the um, rejection and the spite of this Hebrew that may have brought this more to light to Pharaoh's attention, and that put... God's deliverer in mortal danger, and that's why he fled to a land, uh, to, to fled to Midian. So that's the way Stephen presents it, and then you know, I, I don't know how that I don't know uh, how to argue with that. I mean, he's closer to the situation than I am. The Israelite here is a type of Israel's flat rejection of the divinely appointed leader. Stephen uh, goes through this brief historical note that Moses was a sojourner in Midian. And Stephen again emphasizes that God can work and reveal himself outside of Israel. And so the next 40 years begins with what? A new life. A new life in what way? What's the big event in that last 40 years? Burning the burning bush. Where did this take place? Midian. Is that a suburb of Jerusalem? <laughs> no. This is again outside the land of Israel. The earth is his footstool, right? He's revealing himself in the most profound revealing that they have before Egypt is here in this bush. I am that I am. That's, that's God giving his name to his people and it's outside of Israel. The glory of God appeared to Moses outside of Israel. And I like the fact that Stephen keeps saying an angel appeared, an angel, an angel. Who's the angel? Right? Again, we see this whole biblical theology. I'm going to go to Grant every time for the answer. It's Jesus. Well, I know. It's just five minutes. Um, so, so you have, again, uh, Stephen developing. Leader receives the presence of God, receives the, the revelation of God outside of Israel. Um, all right. So he has to take off his sandals even. Why? The ground is holy. Outside of Israel. This, I'm just, oh, wow, see, that's, you can feel the, the relaxing, right? <laughs> this is going to go well. Um, way outside of Israel. He takes his temple with him, basically, is what Stephen is saying. Uh, and again, in verse 34, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now I will send you to Egypt. Again, God faithful and fulfilling his promises by appointing a deliverer, a deliverer they had already rejected. That's why he ran from Egypt in the first place. And a deliverer they would continue to reject throughout their time in the wilderness. You see what he's doing. He's basically loading the cannon for the last three verses in this speech. And here's where it starts getting uh, a little hotter for them. Uh, look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received, a, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? All right. First off, notice, not winning friends here. What, how does he compare Moses? What does he call Moses? Yes. In what way? Redeemer. Redeemer. The Redeemer. He's making that association, that typology there that we call it. Um, even more than saying Moses is a type of Christ, what does he say Moses said to the people? After me will come what? A prophet like me. Hear him, Deuteronomy says. He's echoing Peter's sermon on uh, Solomon's portico, and Stephen uses the words assembly. He said this to the assembly. He, he gave us living oracles. He's making comparisons between the, the word he's using is ecclesia, which ecclesia is church. He's making comparisons to what Christ did in the church. He's making comparisons to living oracles from the law, being the living oracles of the gospel. He's showing that God is faithful in redemptive history to his people. And what are the, what are the people doing? What are our fathers doing? Rejecting. They're rejecting him. They're saying, we don't want him. We want the gods of our slavery. Right? We want things that we can worship that we made with our hands, like a temple. You see the association he's making. What is it about ancient idol worship? What, what, we've talked about this before. What is the thing that goes on there? Is the idol actually the god? 
you remember us talking about this? The idol is not actually the god. The idol, the idol is a representation of the, the deity they've imagined. Okay, they make it out of stone or gold or whatever. And it's believed to house the presence of the god. And so you have your genie in a bottle that's housed and your little god that does this, you know, whatever. It's like, what? Um, so you have your little what god with a little stuff in there that's supposed to be the spirit of the god that resides the house of the god. And you, by whatever means, he talks about Molech, sacrifice your children to manipulate the god. The, 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 the uh, Ashtaroth, you dance around and all kinds of weird stuff to manipulate your god. Um, the, if, if it's Baal that's going, what? If it's Baal, then you, have, you beat yourself around a, 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 an altar to manipulate your god. Oh, but we don't have a little altar. We have a building. Right? We have a building, and it houses our God. And we can do certain things, and because we are sons of Abraham, our God must do things for us. He must deliver us from Rome. He must... You see what he's doing? You can have idolatry and all the trappings of biblical imagery all you want. If you're not seeking the person and work of Christ, it's still idolatry. You can pursue Southern Baptist life all you want. <laughs> if you enshrine it and worship it, that's not Jesus. He's pointing out that they've basically turned what God gave them as a house to worship Him into a house to... They've twisted it in like it's a house to contain Him. What's going to contain Him? What could you possibly build to contain infinite God? And yet, this is the mentality you have? This is a God of your imagination. It's not the real God. And you want to say that I'm blaspheming your imaginary God? Really? Making friends. How does he judge them in verse 42? How does he judge them? How does God judge the people? What does he say? He gave them over to what? He gave them over to their pagan worship. He gave them over to their dancing around the golden calf. And ultimately it led them to where they wanted to be anyway, slavery. The most terrifying judgment that God can render to us is giving us over to our own sin. Ephraim has gone after idols. Leave him alone. How terrifying. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. No restraint. And that's what happens to Israel. The house idea made God to be contained in a man-made edifice. And like the golden calf, the house is worshipped, not God. So up to this point... Stephen has made it clear that God was active and revealed Himself far away from Jerusalem and the temple to Abraham, to Moses. He worked in Joseph. And the tabernacle, it seems, in Stephen's view, was a preferred house of worship than the temple because he seems to be arguing 
that God is closest to his people when they are in pilgrimage. When they don't have a land. He's more active with them when, they, when they're on pilgrimage. Um, and then he ends with Isaiah 64. It kind of caps off the argument. The temple was to be a house of worship for Israel to worship God, not a house for God, uh, for God where Israel could try to manipulate him like the pagans worship their gods. And this, ultimately, he does give them over to this. And in 70 AD, the nationalism that was bred and exacerbated from Jerusalem at this time uh, led to a rebellion again, and Rome destroys Jerusalem, tears the temple down stone by stone, exactly as Jesus had predicted he would. All right. So Stephen's knowing that his argument probably not, is not going to stave off what was coming. He's been loading the cannons now for 50 verses. In 51 he fires. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Who's blaspheming the law? Who's blaspheming the law? The Israelites are. The Jews are. They're coming at him with blasphemy of the law, and he's showing them, you, you've broken the law. You've created an idol out of this temple. You put to death the son of righteousness through a false trial. How many commandments do we break in the, in the crucifixion? False trial, murder. I mean, just start. Jealousy going on. All kinds of stuff. Notice how he changes his reference to past Israel. All this time he's been saying, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. What does he do in these last three verses? Your fathers. Not my fathers. Right? Your fathers. Your fathers. It's a direct personal appeal here. Their history is one who killed the messengers of God's word and they were about to do it again. He knew it. You could see it in their eyes. So all of the summary of this history has come to this point. This defense becomes an indictment. Israel has consistently rejected God's appointed leaders, Moses, Joseph, and the prophets, all pointing to the ultimate rejection of Christ. Israel was guilty of turning the temple into an object for human manipulation and distortion of the true purpose of worship and prayer. And Stephen never once denigrates the law here. He calls it living oracles. He never calls it bad. He points to their violation of it. Um, all right. Note this, though. He's already talked about how God's deliverance came on the second visitation with Moses, with Joseph. There's implied here, I think, here's your second chance. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's your second chance. 
ultimately, this is not a defense. It's a witness. And we'll see in the rest of chapter 7 how that plays out. How blind, how stubborn, how irrational. I mean, to be given a place to pray and worship God and turn the place into an idol. How messed up is that? To be given a land where you're free to pray and worship the true God and distort it into the only place that matters. To worship what they make with their hands. To set as the supreme authority the fantasy they crafted for themselves and call it reality. How silly. To not realize where their rebellion is taking them and be so confused that they can't find their way back. How pathetic. Aren't we glad we live in America? <laughs> this, is, this history of Israel is a history of people. We always resist the Holy Spirit. There is no hope for our unsaved countrymen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit whom they always will resist. But for God's mercy, transforming the heart, they die. But for God's mercy, transforming your heart, you die. Thank God for His work. God's Word transforms hearts. How will they hear without someone telling them? So as we're looking into our culture today, I think we, I think we use uh, Stephen as encouragement. It's not the time for weak gospel. It's not the time for culture-accommodating gospel. It's not the time to be mean unnecessarily, but it's certainly a time to speak the truth. There's no hope apart from the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit works through the preaching of His Word. I have written in my notes, now is not the time for weak, pansy, culture-accommodating gospel, which is no gospel. Now is not the time for weak, fake-smiling, perfect-hair, empty-suit preachers. And I mean that about the perfect hair. We need Stevens. We need Stevens. We need men who are committed not only to preach boldly, but to live boldly. To live holy, bold lives adorned, that adorn the gospel. What do we prize and worship that is made with our hands or from our own imaginations? It's easy to look at the culture around us and point fingers. What are we clinging to? What are we turning a blind eye to? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 Israel chose the gods of their slavery. They even found a way to do it with the instruments given to them by Yahweh. That's a warning to us. <clears throat> And a plea for us to pursue the hope that we have in Christ alone. Now it's running a little long, so maybe a couple of quick comments and then we'll we'll close out. Yeah. Could you already kind of made this uh, connection, but it's interesting that historic revisionism that takes place in all of the hearts of mankind. And you know, Israel rewrote history to make it say what they wanted. And then Stephen said, no, this is actually what history stands for. And Christ did the same thing after he was resurrected from the dead, going back and showing himself throughout the Old Testament. Right. 
But it's passages like this that increase my discernment and say, should I really believe all of the history that has, you know, come down the line, American history or uh, the lack of God, or it, it kind of makes you question it. And and understanding God's sovereignty, it it increases discernment. Yeah, I think the pursuit of true history is a is a good pursuit for any Christian. Um, going back to the source documents probably a good idea. And, and always understanding that people try to rewrite history to make it say what their agenda wants, mm-hmm. it, that helps increase discernment as well. Yeah, I mean, the other side of that is you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist all the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy a good conspiracy theory, don't, don't get me wrong, but, but we can't do it all the time. I mean, there has, you have to rest somewhere. Any other comments? Kevin? Yes, sir. Uh, is it safe to say uh, Israel is kind of a shadow of the church? Like, he talks about people being in a foreign country and being brought into mm-hmm. the nation of Israel uh, from Abraham and Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Philip likes talking about city of man versus city yeah. of God. Yeah. He brings us up. Right. He brings us out of Midian. He brings us out of uh, Babylon yeah. to to Jerusalem. But it's the true Jerusalem. Right. It's not a Jerusalem we make with our hands. It's a city right. built by God, as the author of Hebrews, Apollos, <coughs> says. Right. That that that, uh, that it is not a city made with hands. Um, yeah. I think it's. I think it's a. T- and it's also. I think shows in the church's history. You see the danger of worshiping what we build with our hands over pursuing Christ. Just think about the Middle Ages for a while. There's a lot of that going on. Think about, uh, oh, I don't know, the megachurch movement. Yeah. Uh, there's some of that going on, too. So. I think just two quick things. One thing was, these people were very familiar with this history. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think it's a, an encouragement to us to read passages carefully that we've read since we were little or mm-hmm. heard since we were little because it, when you really start going through it the way that you were going through it today things that they had heard their whole life that they were truly listening mm-hmm. they would have seen something that that they didn't like necessarily mm-hmm. or they might have thought no god doesn't work that way but right. god tells us how he works we don't tell him how right. he works but um I guess that's the other thing is that God doesn't always work the way we think he does. Never works contrary to scripture, but he doesn't always yeah. do things the way we would expect him to. The consistency is, is, is his, not ours, a lot of times. Yeah. He's always consistent with what he's revealed. We just need to be careful about reading it and knowing the pursuit of who he is uh, versus uh, contriving yeah. and making him fit our mold. Yeah. And doing the hard work of actually reading mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what the author was actually trying to say. Right. right. Instead Good. of making it fit what we want it to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's merely 15 after. Any, anything else? Let me pray. Father, it's so easy to thump our chest and look at the folly of others. But you've called us 
to reflect Jesus. And we want to do that rightly. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes where we are blinded by our own idolatry, by our own um, exaltation of things we've made with our hands. Would you grant us, Father, the, the privilege of living holy, bold lives that adorn a boldly proclaimed gospel? Father, when we get into discussions about the gospel with people that are hostile or just apathetic, would you help us to enter into those discussions from a heart of love that wants to see the person enter the kingdom and be saved from the wrath to come, from their own sin, not as a way to sound loud and look tough, but that we have the heart that you have, that the Father is seeking true worshipers. We want to add to that number. And so as your Holy Spirit works in us, we pray that he works in the hearts of those we, we are able to talk to about Jesus. That he would do what only he can do, which is to change the heart. Not to lift us up, but, but that through our humble, obedient lives, we would be lowered and Christ would be exalted. Could we partake in the role of the Holy Spirit, which is to make much of Jesus? We want to do that. It's the role you've given us to make disciples, to bring true worshipers into the body of Christ. So God, start with us. Help us to be true worshipers, not worshiping things that we've made with our hands, things that we prize above the gospel, things that we prize above Christ. Would you tear those things down? Help us to love you and you alone. And realize that we are people on pilgrimage and that you dwell with us as we travel to the city of God. Make us faithful journeyers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.